I'll be reading from Romans 1, 18 through 23. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wicked, wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly, clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that the people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Well, I have a feeling that several of you found it uh, a challenge to get through all of Romans in one sitting. Uh, you can read two and three times as much uh, literature when it's a story, right? When we read the Gospels, it's this great story. When we get to Romans, it's these dense thought ideas. And if I didn't, uh, if I didn't really say it well enough, I think you needed to push through and not, you don't have to understand everything that's being said, but I do believe that as we go back through the book, you're going to discover that if you've read through the whole thing, when you hear things, they're going to echo in several places. Bells will be rung in several places that will make it possible for you to kind of start to put the whole together as we move forward. I want to be sure you know that next Sunday we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and I would encourage you to read forward in that way. But this week's homework, in addition to reading chapter 2, 1 through 16, or if you haven't picked up Romans and made it through it in a single or at least a couple of sittings, kind of thing like that, uh, this homework is to rewatch Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anybody in favor of that one? That one's a fun one, isn't it? Okay. Uh, I was reminded by someone this morning when I told them I was going to use this illustration that you may have an entire group of people who've never seen it. Shame on you, shame on you, shame on you. This is one of the great classics of, of, of cinema. Uh, at least it's a fun movie to watch in many different ways. There is a scene towards the end of the movie where, again, the Ark of the Covenant of God, which is theoretically found in a... In a, in a encased in a tomb in Egypt, and there's reason to think that it might be somewhere like that uh, based on what we read from First and Second Samuel as they lost the ark and the possibility that it went there. The Nazis steal it. We know that the Nazis are bad guys. Yes, just to be sure, you sort of establish that as a baseline. And the Nazis see the Ark of the Covenant as this uh, kind of trinket, this good luck charm that will help them win the war. And when they go to be sure that it is the true ark and they open it up, terrible things happen. Callan read about the wrath of God being revealed. You need to be sure you understand that the wrath of God is not anger. It is not the same thing as anger. Uh, Jesus will cleanse the temple and it will be described in John as his, he, he acts out of anger because, but it's a righteous anger. It's an anger that says, you have violated everything that God wanted you to be about. And in fact, his, his righteous anger will overflow into, particularly into those who have been entrusted with the law of God and teaching people 
uh, who God is and what God asks of them, his word, his instruction, he particularly gets angry when they have so far missed the mark. And so the cleansing of the temple becomes this moment where he righteous indignation, righteous anger pours out. And he says, you can't do it this way. This is completely antithetical to what God wanted this place and his people to be about. And we have this powerful representation. By the way, no, not a biblical representation. Everybody say, I know it's not biblical. Everybody say, I know it's not biblical. But it is a visceral, it is a sensory way of saying, ah. It's not that God is angry. It is the idea that you have violated that which God says is sacred and holy, and there will be repercussions to, their, your, to your action. They take the lid of the ark off, they look inside, and there are repercussions to those answers. Somebody say, if you've watched the movie, and by the way, moms and dads of young children, be sure and say thank you to Alan for not putting a melting face up on the screen. Yes? But I particularly love the part where, and, and they're here in the scene, they're in the dark, but in the scene, uh, Indiana will say to his friend, Miriam, yes, Miriam, ah, it's a good biblical name, Miriam, he will say to Miriam, close your eyes, and a flame comes from the ark and consumes, and this is powerful, consumes everything everything that would view him as some sort of object to be used by them as opposed to a holy God. What saves them is the recognition, we can't see God. And they close their eyes and the flames whip around them. I love, again, you, you have a hard time uh, imagining what it was like for Daniel's friends to be thrown into the furnace and to come out un unscathed and this scene uh, when they're done when the flame is done burning the ropes that they are tied to the post with disappear they are they, they've been burned up and yet they themselves are not burned the difference between seeing God as an object to be used and manipulated by you and recognizing even in the most fundamentally small ways that God is something much greater and holy and other and so is to be treated with and again the words we have to use fear and reverence I find that illustrated well there Paul wants to talk about the gospel Paul is a person who knows personally the wrath of God or at least I will say that he thought he did. As he neared, neared Damascus, this from Acts chapter 9, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Again, the idea of light ought to sort of ring a bell here. Um, it's interesting that when you look for illustrations of this, often the painting will be depicted at night. And yet it does not appear that Paul and his group are traveling at night. I can understand, by the way, the painter's dilemma. I want to highlight the light, so I have to make other things dark. But it's, you know, even to the point of there being moon and stars in the sky and this light breaks through, but instead, this light that comes seems to be so much brighter than the day that it can be identified as a light greater than the light coming from the sun itself. 
flashed down around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Saul was Paul's name before he uh, took on a, a Gentile, more Gentile name. Uh, uh, Gentiles, those who spoke Greek, couldn't get the sh sound out. That was, that was basically not something they could do, and this is Shaul was his name in Hebrew. And so just to keep it from being such a problem, I can relate to this. He said, just call me Paul. And they said, oh, that's so much easier. We can call you Paul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I don't think for a minute that there is any idea that Paul had in his mind that the source of the light that knocked him off his horse, that interrupted his day, that stopped his life in its tracks exactly where it was, was not coming from God. And yet he says, and by the way, I, hear, I want you to hear this as desperation. As a person who understands that punishment and vindication is about to come, you make an appeal. I remember doing this when I was a child, and I knew I was about to get punishment, and then you could kind of create some sort of conversation that might delay it, but it wasn't going to be stopped. And maybe in some way Saul is saying, I, 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 maybe I can appeal to some technicality here. Who is this? And I don't know that he knew this would come. But he said, the voice replied, I am Jesus. And if there were any doubts about who this Yeshua was, Joshua, Jesus, the one you are persecuting. This moment in Paul's life makes a big difference because in several different places, he will repeat telling this story in the book of Acts. He will mention it again in his letters. He keeps pointing back to the fact that he was the chief of sinners. He keeps pointing back to the fact that he was a murderer. He thought he was murdering for God and what he discovered that he was murdering people who loved God. And in that moment, the wrath of God was not simply something that would be sort of, I can talk about that in theory, but the wrath of God was going to be, he believed, I think, was going to be a permanent mark on his record. The fact that he was only left blind for three days still reveals his understanding. He doesn't shout in anger at God. By the way, the Psalms are full of places where you can shout at anger of God. Instead, he recognizes that God's wrath has justly come upon him even though it did not kill him, it has justly come upon him, and he had no hope except what God would send him. The wrath of God is being revealed. The beginning of the story and the beginning of the celebration of God's good news must always be with an understanding of the reality of sin and the reality of the brokenness that comes because sin is part of the world. Because we participate in sin and perpetuate its brokenness. Not only in our own lives, but the brokenness of sin comes in and breaks societies. It breaks families, breaks individual lives, it breaks families, it breaks communities, and it breaks entire cultures. 
Sin will bring brokenness because sin will bring the revelation of the wrath of God. Join me as we pick up where Callan left off. And thank you, Callan, for such a great reading. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. And then as a good Jew, amen, join me, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not be done. Now I want to be sure and say, it may be that you shut your brain down and say, well, God's identified the great and terrible wrath and it comes forth in, the, in what is produced by homosexual relations. I would encourage you to keep listening because that's not the end of God's list of things that happen when we ignore who God is and the truth of God. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those, also approve of those who practice them. First of all, we need to place these words in a historical context. And yes, you know Rome and you know about the year mid-50s, but again, I want to remind you, Paul's overarching problem that he's going to address in this proclamation of the gospel, and it is the greatest proclamation and summary of what he considers to be his gospel and an understanding of, of what God's good news is about. Be sure that you don't forget that we're in a place where the Jews were kicked out. Jewish Christians were kicked out of Rome. And the church began to exist as a holy and completely Gentile event. Maybe the only place in that part of the world at that time where there was no background of Jewishness any longer that were part of the church. That is to say, people who understood the Torah and the requirements of that legalistic system. Sabbaths, circumcision, kosher eating and things like that. You have a church that spent, let's say, the number five years being very Gentile, and now the Jews come back to town and they say, boy, sure glad that we got here because we need to straighten you out on a few things. And it caused divisions, and it caused hurtfulness. 
And not only did the Jews say, we need to straighten you out on a few things, but probably some of the Gentiles said, you people, we're doing so much better without you. Don't bring any of that back with you if you want to come be a part of church. This displeases God greatly. That kind of arrogance. It says, if you're going to be part of church, don't bring any of those traditions with you. does not please God. So we need to keep in mind these ideas. The language here is mixed up. The language here is mixed all together. It identifies things that are very much part of the Roman culture as far as sinfulness and very much not part of the Jewish culture. But then there's a call that you understand the, the God, way God has been revealed and you know the righteous requirements that he calls from. And while he will make a case that even Gentiles can recognize those righteous requirements or at least the parameters of them, he's talking about the idea that Jews know that they're wrong. And so it is that he includes both kinds of language in these statements to be both connecting with both audiences and eventually going to make sure that both audiences understand that without Christ, neither one of you had it right. So let's look at the verses in a little more detail very quickly. First of all, if you look at verses 17, and that was from last week, I realize, but if we skip back to 17 and 18, there are a couple of revelations. There is the revelation of God's righteousness that is expressed through Jesus and the salvation that is ours. And we all say, Amen. But there is also the revelation of God's wrath. Because the good news is the way in which God's, God's gospel stands in contrast to the reality of the brokenness of sin. The revelation of God's righteousness is the good news of Christ and the salvation through him. And the revelation of God's wrath is not because God is angry at us. It is not because God wants to lose his temper somehow or another. And again, I understand that as humans, we have experienced abuses from people who lose their temper. And sometimes when we talk about anger or wrath of God, we associate it with the way in which people around us, maybe even people in authority, have lost their temper in the way that we have been subjected to, to those things. This is not what God is doing. God is doing what he always said he would do. And we can go all the way back to the first pages of the Bible and the opening stories of the Bible. And God said, this is the, I've made this perfect, wonderful place for you to be. But if you choose to do the things that are contrary to what I've called you to do, you will enter into, and he used the words, death. It's not my fault that you're going to enter into death because I've set up a way for you to live in this beautiful, blessed place. But if you think you have a better way, better way, I can promise you that the natural result of doing things in what you think is a better way as opposed to my good way will always end up in things breaking. Death, lives, families, communities, entire cultures the suppression of the suppression of the natural truth the reality of a higher being you need to understand if you if you haven't read and some of you have read more of it than i have plato talks about we can't be the way we are the world can't be the way it is unless there is a, a higher intelligence that is ordering what comes together 
Cicero, a contemporary in, in Roman world, with Paul, will talk about the idea of a, of a greater intellect, an original source, the original, original causer of things, because our creation says that it couldn't have just happened this way. It didn't do it accidentally. It came with a purpose, and the purpose is reflected in everything that you see. There is a reality of a higher being. The Jews will know him as Jehovah. And you need to understand that Jewish influence in the Greco-Roman world was significant. Their synagogues had gone out. And as there was a proclamation in the intellectual circles of Plato and Cicero about this idea of a higher being, the Jews knew his name. And the Jews told his story. And there was a lot of attraction to what the Jews had to say. The reading of the law and the prophets and the psalms. So it was not uncommon for a, a Hellenistic person living in Rome in the day of Paul to not only have not just a sort of a faint idea that there could be a higher being, but they know that there's a people called Jews who have a name for him. And he's very different than the guys who sit on statues in our temples. But the Jews know him, and we know him as Jehovah. And the suppression is expressed in sin, in ungodliness, and being the opposite of God, that is to say, unrighteous. If God is the righteous one, he is the one who wants justice. He is the one who propagates love and mercy everywhere that he goes. He is good and right. Then anything that steps across from that, anything that says that not as God is not good, in other words, ultimately good, anything that says that I won't stand for justice for all humanity because we are all humans together, anyone that would stand against the idea of loving your neighbor is the way Jesus said it, and instead choosing to live a life that says I see people as simply things to be used and manipulated, that is sin. And that is the expression of the suppression of God's good. There's a common phrase that's going to come up. It goes this way. They exchanged, and because they exchanged the good that God wanted to give them, God will give them over. Let's look at the exchanges first. They exchanged, first of all, the glory of the immortal for images. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then finally, particularly pointedly, they exchanged natural sexual relations for inflamed passions. The core of this exchange is the truth of an immortal, holy, and greater, I, I use the word other. When we use holy, it's too religious. He is not like us. He is other than us, greater than us. For human-formed gods, whether they were in the form of animals or the form of people, the form of animals, the Romans would say, those are the pagans. We enlightened Romans worship gods who are in human form. They had talked about a, a system of deities that were looked like them. But the revolt, result is reflected in the culture's rampant sexual immorality. Houston Museum of Natural Science is opening a new display called Pompeii. Uh, parents, if you 
normally take your young children to the museum because you think everything will be good and not a problem. I, I want to warn you, I have not been yet, but if they reflect in any kind of accuracy what you find in Pompeii, your young children do not need to go. Sharon and I had the opportunity back in 1995 to go to Italy and to be near Naples, and Naples is near Pompeii, and you need to visit. It is a place that was preserved by a volcano, Mount Etna, erupting and covering Pompeii. It is preserved just like it was in the time of Paul. And when you visit homes, particularly homes of any wealth, you will find frescoes, art on the wall, permanent art. And that art is almost exclusively erotica. It is about both inappropriate bisexual relations, heterosexual relations, sorry I said that wrong, and inappropriate homosexual relationships. And they were glorified. Here's the greatest expression of our humanity. Here's what we can be about. We can be truly human if we're engaged in any and every kind of sexual relations. And for men, it particularly gave an opportunity for them to enforce a superiority and a submission and to, to somehow or another say, I'm better than you are. It was abusive oftentimes. That is the world that Paul is speaking to. And it was not a hidden world where you have to go to the wrong side of town. It wasn't a hidden world where you have to tune into uh, the wrong channels or where you have to click the wrong button on your browser. It was everywhere. I've been a few places in my travels where it seemed to be absolutely everywhere. I'm thankful that most of the America that I visit is not that way yet. I say yet. But it is the cultural decline that Paul chose to rest on to make sure that they understood it is against what God wanted. And it's not just that homosexual relations are against what God wanted. But when we take marriage, when we take sexuality out of the context and protections and provisions of marriage, it becomes an easy place for people to be abused. And it takes something that God said was good, made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his wife and they will become one. This is a blessing on sexuality. But when it's taken out of that context, it becomes a using of people. And God has no intent for his image bearer, for human beings to be used. Somebody please say amen. So they exchange a truth about God for lies, idolatry, the idea that humans themselves are the greatest kind of expression. And this gets highlighted by Paul in these unnatural sexual relations. And the next echo is that God gave them over. He gave them over to dishonoring their created bodies. And you need to understand that when a human body is used in the wrong way for the wrong things, it dishonors the creator. About dishonorable 
passions and a depraved mind that leads to sinfulness. Maybe the depraved mind is simply the idea of nobody's watching, and if I can get away with it, nobody's hurt. That's completely contrary to the things that God says. And that's just one example. A depraved mind, a mind that doesn't, at the very top of the list, if you remember, if you've read from the Psalms and the Proverbs at all, you recognize this phrase, the beginning of wisdom, can you end it for me, is the fear of the Lord. A depraved mind is any time we take God as the ultimate expression of everything we want our humanity to be about and replace it with anything our mind gets pointed into the wrong things. And it opens the door. It opens the door for sin, which opens the door to brokenness, and the brokenness is a reflection of the wrath that God will bring forth. So, you didn't come here to just be told how bad things were. Somebody say amen to that. We need to be people who live in contrast to that brokenness. And although that's not part of this particular pericope that we're looking at, these verses that we're looking at today, I believe that it is the background to which Paul says, to understand the gospel, you've got to understand brokenness and the revelation of the wrath of God. So how do we live in contrast to that? I take these applications, not just be good, be good, be good, and wag my finger at you, but instead I hope that we can use this context to help us understand how we live contrary to the way people's minds were darkened and therefore their lives carried into brokenness. First of all, we need to recognize the way that we think about sin. We need to be recognizing the way that we think about sin and I think so often it is easy for us to recognize sin and point to it and say, you're a weak person. There's something wrong with you because you've let sin get involved in your life. And of course, we don't say that about ourselves, although maybe the way we quantify, I have this weakness and it falls into sin. But instead, we need to be identifying sin as rebellion to God. That's the way that we need to understand sin. And by the way, your friends whose lives have been completely surrounded by a broken culture all their lives, and they say, I don't know any better, Paul would take contradiction to that. Because there's something deep down inside us that recognizes that abusing other people is not consistent with the way that we've been made. And so we need to understand that when sin comes into the picture, it isn't about the idea of our weakness. It is the idea that we want to do it our way. And it would be nice to point to the people outside. But in reality, how often do we want to see ourselves as being in charge of what's right and wrong and what's good and bad? Number two. If we're going to live in contrast, we need to be defining the difference between condoning and compassion. 
that last line from the text. They not only practice these things, but they condone those who teach them as right. They, they let it go. That's an easy thing to do, by the way, when you see sin as weakness. Oh, we can't help it, right? So we'll just, just get along. Won't you just get along? But there is a far cry different when we recognize the wrongness of something and then we try in our self-righteousness to say, you are condemned differently than I am condemned because of the type of rebellion you participate in as opposed to the kind of rebellion that I participate in. If they walk in this door, or if they cross my path, I'm going to do everything I can do to love them. Whatever their brokenness in their life. And if it happens to be a topic that is controversial in our, our culture, I do think that we need to stand up for the truth of what God says. And there may be very few places more than the, the, the mistaken way in which we've identified struggles with same-sex attraction and somebody being born to only be homosexual. We lost out in that conversation many, many years ago because we didn't even want to face that it was coming. And now the conversation has changed and we don't even have a seat at the table. And, if you're not aware, focus on the family by stepping in and asserting truths has been silenced on a platform like Twitter. And I understand that Instagram is pretty, although focus on the family doesn't have a whole lot to do with Instagram, but that Instagram is right behind them. We need to stand for truth, and we need to do it with the greatest compassion we can possibly have. I work hard in my interactions with people to understand where brokenness comes in, but to maintain a relationship that says, I don't want to ever break the communication and the relationship we have. Because if I break that, I think your chances of finding your way to God's goodness are less than if I keep the door open here. Finally, and I probably should have spent a lot more time on this, they quit giving thanks to God. And so if we're going to be living in contrast to brokenness, we need to constantly be celebrating the power of praise and giving thanks to God. And lifting up his name. I hope your radio, I hope your iPod, I hope your life is saturated by things that give praise to God. We're going to sing one of my favorite songs as the invitation. And I invite you to join in wholeheartedly. And it isn't that singing songs of praise somehow or another completely changes your mind so that it doesn't see things as good that are actually bad but it points you in the right direction. Amen? So, 
In closing, let me take you back to verse 16. Because the gospel is the idea that God has the power to bring salvation to everybody. That doesn't matter mean that doesn't matter where you're stuck in the brokenness of the world, God has salvation for you. He will call you to live out of your brokenness and into his life. Amen. So he's not going to leave you where you are. But he is the one that can bring salvation to everyone. If you want to communicate with us and if there's any way that you want to know more about this message today or if you want to respond to that gospel call that God wants to save everyone and move you individually from brokenness to life so that then you can bring life to a family and so that you can then bring life, more life to a community and that you can be an impact of salt and light in the culture that we have, then you can reach out to us on that number on the screen. It is God's breath in our lives. And I will use that breath to praise him. Won't you come as we sing and sing? Live life.